Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Hi, friends. Can you hear me? Yes? Greetings. Ah, I'm Marcel, and if this is your first time at Life in Deep Ellum, we're so glad you're here. If you're not, we're also glad you're here. We, we started our Advent series last week. We're calling it WWJD, throwback to the 90s, early aughts. I can't even remember. What would Joseph do? So we're, we've been doing character studies, you know, looking at people in the Bible, trying to, trying to understand in, in a little more context and beyond the, the established narratives of, of, that we learned in Sunday school, what these people went through and how their relationship with God and their relationship to others can shed light on our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Last week, Reverend Baranda Fermin introduced us to the character of Joseph, and she focused on hope as an essential component of his story. So I want to make two caveats before I start. One is that I'm just going to straight up rehash Baranda's sermon, okay? So... That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to replace the word hope for peace every time. We're good to go. The second is that there's, you know, one of the ego traps of preaching is that you feel like whatever you do, it's got to be the, you know, the, the next theological epiphany of, of everyone's lives. And sometimes, sometimes we're just called to point out the obvious and move on. So if, you know, if I had... An alternate title for this sermon, that's probably, it would either be copying Miranda Freeman or uh, stating the obvious and moving on. Um, <laughs> last week, Miranda gave us some information about Joseph's context, the, the social context uh, that Marion and, and Joseph lived in, the background, and, and in preparation for this sermon, because she, she did a little, a, bit, a little bit of deconstructing. You know, Joseph could have been this guy, he could have been um, a young proponent to which Mary was betrothed, he could also be this really older gentleman that took her in uh, as a second marriage. So there's all these scenarios of who Joseph could have been. So I wanted to one-up her historical uh, examination and went to talk to, to my boss, who's the, the, the dean, Craig Hill, he's the dean of Perkins School of Theology, and he's a New Testament scholar, right? So I knocked on his door, and I kind of asked, Craig, listen up, I need to, I need to speak on Joseph this weekend. So what is like the secret, you know, authoritative text on Joseph that I can that I can bring to the to the table? And he looked at me and he said, "Marcel, if anyone claims to be authoritative about Joseph, they're lying." I was, Thank you very much. Great job. Just went back to my office with my tail between my legs because there's very little that we know or can know about Joseph, especially from the historical perspective. We talk about the historical Jesus all the time. You know, this person who did live in this period, um, in this place, there is very little about Joseph. There are some manuscripts, like the, the 6th or 7th century, uh, The Life of Joseph the Carpenter, which is an apocryphal, I mean, it's not in the Bible, Christian text, And it kind of compiles oral tradition from earlier times into written form. But these texts are very removed from from the actual contexts and lives of Joseph, Jesus, and Mary. Now, in the Gospels, we do get 
a bit of Joseph, right? Mostly in, 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 in Mark, Luke, and Matthew. I mean, only in Mark, Luke, and Matthew. And basically, there's two scenes. There's the birth of Jesus and what came before and after, right? So the Annunciation and then the actual birth and them leaving for Egypt to escape Herod. And then you fast forward 12 years into this, this scene of a runaway Jesus when he's 12 years old and they go to the temple, they come back to the temple, they can't find Jesus. Uh, and that's it. That's, and we don't hear about Joseph, again, except for really boring genealogies. Uh, there's, it's radio silence. Many scholars assume that to mean that Joseph died when Jesus was a, a teenager or you know, a pre-teenager shortly after that event. There's one book from the second century called Proto-James, Again, I just I went looking everywhere I could, you know, um, which says that Joseph was really very old when he took Mary in, maybe 80 years old. And according to one of the church fathers, who were these early Christian writers, a dude called Epiphanius, uh, at the in the fourth century, that says that Joseph died right after that visit to the temple, which is recorded in Luke 2, 41 to 52. And there are scholars like this this dude called Andres von Orde, who, who in 1998 wrote an article saying, Joseph is not a real person. He's a legendary, biblical person. It's like, okay. I, I'll give you that reference if you want to read it. You know, read yourself to sleep. Um, <laughs> sorry. But even if we do consider Joseph a fictional character, if you, even if you do that, that doesn't change what we have written about him in scripture, right? Uh, and... I don't think it changes the fact that God speaks through Joseph's story. That's the assumption that we're making for these other stories as well. We talked about Ruth. We talked about a bunch of other people. And we're coming with the expectation that in reading these stories, we, we understand a little bit more of who God is and who we are in God's world. So these, the short passages that we have about Joseph... They, they provide glimpses mainly into his character. There's the, the historical, logistical stuff, you know, Joseph did it instead of doing that. But there's also insight into how he was feeling. And Baranda reminded us, and this we know, that he was a, a carpenter or a construction worker, and we know that Jesus had either siblings or step-siblings, And we know that Joseph served as a protector and provider for Mary and Jesus. We know, in fact, that he went the common sense of of the social custom and the law of his time when he didn't cast her out for being pregnant out of their wedlock. And I know every preacher emphasizes this. It was a big scandal. And uh, the Bible tells us that Joseph wanted to kind of solve the situation Quietly, and we're going to hear about that more in a little bit. But I do want to reiterate that this is a very big deal. That what, what he did there was not just, he was not just being nice. It took going against, significant going against the culture. And that's something that early Christian writers really go out of their way to emphasize. The character of Joseph. And they do that in a way that we're probably not accustomed to. You know, when someone asks you who you are, you don't say, I am Marcel, the son of Aldir, the son of Raoul. I don't give my genealogy. But that is how a lot of times these early writers 
attest to the character of someone. They say, this is the lineage. And if you look at the lineages of Jesus in the Gospels, there's two and they're different. One has 40-odd people, one has 70-odd people. But they're trying to make a point. And and the way that they're depicting Joseph is as a person of integrity and obedience. Now, last week... We, our job was to look at Joseph from the perspective of, of hope. And today we're looking at Joseph through the lens of peace. But before we do, I, I do want to say that one thing that really baffles me in the Bible is the, the, the selection of who ends up in leadership or in these kind of pivotal positions that we read about. Moses is insecure and temperamental. The Old Testament Joseph, you know, the one with the robe and the dreams and the brothers, he's conceited, he's lucky, and he's spoiled. David, King David, starts out fine. I mean, he was a musician, right? It's good going for him. But then he succumbs to this major midlife crisis and, and really screws up. So and all, you know, on and on into the New Testament, you have these people, these unlikely people that end up in situations... Uh, upon which history hinges, so to speak. And I want to illustrate that with a, some fictional correspondence between Jesus and an HR firm. I didn't come up with this, but I found it on the internet. All right. To Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafters, Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, 25922, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we have not only run the results through our computer but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. Much as an auditor will include general statements and this is given as a result of staff consultation without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They don't get the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. I love that line. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Tadeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score uh, on the manic scale. Uh, One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability, resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. Highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. (laughs) All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. I love this. Because it highlights the discrepancy between how we tend to think of success and the pattern that emerges in Scripture in terms of how God does things. God has this way, this way of going the back 
route. It's like, it's like taking a road trip, right? Most of us, when we're going from point A to point B, we look for the closest highway on ramp and the shortest pass, path to wherever we're going. God, it seems, never leaves the frontage road for the six-lane freeway. Instead, God looks for the first country road sign and turns the other way. It makes no sense. It is not efficient. It is not expedient. But on the journey through the back roads, country roads, communities that exist behind the walls of highway billboards, God meets people in, in local mom and shop, mom and pop diners. God sits at people's kitchen tables while they make tea. God listens to their stories, listens, listens to their dreams. God cries at the tombstone of those recently departed those that are lingering with the memory of family members and don't know how to go back to their lives, which are now less exuberant for the loss of a loved one. God takes the back roads for a reason. And here again in the story of Joseph, we find this pattern because this is an invitation to take a country road. The story of of, of Joseph invites us to drop the grand narrative for a moment. And focus on the day-to-day, the routine, the -the behind-the-curtain maintenance work, the menial tasks that support life. We can think about it this way. There was a lot of expectation around the coming of a Messiah that would free Israel from the oppression of Rome. Our Advent waiting is filled with eggnog and carols. This Advent waiting was panic mode. We need a Messiah. The level of anxiety, the level of frustration, the level of anger of Rome's oppression of Israel drove their expectation of the Messiah. It wasn't just a spiritual expectation. It was a political one. It was a social one. It was a justice one. And that's one of the reasons why Herod was afraid of this newborn king because Jesus, from his perspective, was a political usurper who, who wanted to take his throne. And in this grand narrative of the coming of the Messiah, it's all about Jesus, right? All the other characters seem to fade into the background, and we, for obvious reasons, journey through Advent the same way, right? Our, our manger scene has Jesus at the center, as we sometimes sing here at Life in Deep Ellum, Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. But a deeper examination of the biblical stories includes tasting them, relishing them from other perspectives, like the perspective of Joseph. So the invitation of Joseph's story reminds me, I'm going to get a little nerdy, of the way that Tolstoy, the writer, the Russian writer, depicts the events of Napoleon's invasion of Russia in the early 19th century. When I told my wife I was going to do this, she fell asleep immediately. (laughs) But bear with me. It was a beautiful moment we had in our marriage. The grand narrative of that military campaign is the story of Napoleon, the conqueror, the invader, the one who's kind of cutting across Europe. But... Annie Kabobo, Kakabobo, who's an assistant professor of Russian literature at uh, University of Canvas, she highlights that Tolstoy tells the story differently. 
Because he doesn't tell it from the perspective of Napoleon. He tells it from the perspective of this low-level soldier in the Russian army who's pivotal in the outcome of the story and in the failure of that French invasion. And she says, and she's a Tolstoy scholar, right? In depicting Napoleon's campaign this way, Tolstoy seems to reject the great man theory of history, the idea that events are driven by the will of extraordinary leaders. Tolstoy, in contrast, insists that when privileging extraordinary figures, we ignore the vast grassroots strength of ordinary individuals who don't get a lot in the Bible. But they're there. Joseph is one of these ordinary, extraordinary individuals. And as we follow his story, we're met with hope. In Miranda's words, the story of the nativity as seen through the eyes of Joseph is the perspective that gives us hope. Though Mary can invite us to feel worthy of miracles despite our identity or social role, and Jesus will give us the assurance of miracles present and possible in this earth, it is Joseph in this story that gives us the means by which miracles emerge. Hope, end quote. But it's one thing to encounter hope in Joseph's story as we accept the word of God's, as he does, that of God's angel, that this is a special child, that he should take care of Mary and the baby, that he should escape to Egypt uh, to escape Herod and raise a boy he did not conceive. Hope is about looking forward. Hope is about accepting that, as Paul says in Romans, Hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Hope is about looking forward. Peace, friends, involves another challenge altogether. Peace is about being here now. And yes, the two are connected. So before my family starts to snigger and laugh at me, which they have done in previous sermons, in various locations, I want to make a disclaimer. I suck at this. I'm always looking forward to the next thing. I'm always troubleshooting the future. I'm constantly distracted by potential failures in my grand narrative. I search for peace like a deer searches for water, as the psalmist says in the beginning of Psalm 42, because the deer is thirsty. So I speak of of peace from the perspective of someone who needs it desperately. And when I look at Joseph, I meet someone who has figured something out. Somehow, he's able to look at this perfect storm of illegitimate conception, kingly scrutiny, spiritual revolution, social scandal, and find peace. (laughs) He's like a parent driving a car. All hell is breaking loose in the back seat. There's Kool-Aid on someone's shirt. There's chocolate smeared all over the windows. There's a weird smell that's been there for days and you don't know where it's coming from. But the parent, the parent finds a peaceful place and just keeps on driving. How does he do that? How does he do that? This notion of peace, it's, it's peppered throughout the Bible. In various ways. And I want us to look at that a little bit. So we find peace in the Old Testament all over, right? You, you have it in, in, in the Pentateuch, the first five books that tell the origin story of the people of Israel. You have it in the prophets, you know, Isaiah 12. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become 
my salvation. And Isaiah goes on to talk about peace as a mark of that salvation. In the wisdom books, the Lord, like the Psalms and Ecclesiastes, the Lord gives strength to his prophet, to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. And then in the New Testament, it's all over. In fact, peace is mentioned in every New Testament book except for two. And Paul says in Romans, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. James, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. And the Hebrew word shalom, which you may, you've probably, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard that word, right? Shalom. Means more than just the absence of war or the absence of, of turmoil or the absence of trouble. It indicates reparation, restoration of a balance that has been lost. Shalom is, is, is to make something whole in the broad sense of fullness of mind, fullness of body, fullness of estate, fullness of relationships. And this is probably the word that Jesus would have used, for example, in Luke 24, 36, when he says, peace be with you. Shalom means integration, alignment with God's order through and in God's creation. Peace. And the Greek equivalent of shalom is erene, or erene. And it appears in every New Testament book, except for 1 John and Ephesians. Now, sometimes the term refers to the rule of law and order under the, the Roman peace, right? The Pax Romana. So that peace is the fact that people aren't fighting right now in this particular place. But most of the time, the Greek word edene is, is used to indicate the peace that comes from relationship with God and the relationship with other people. So when Jesus talks about peace, when Paul talks about peace, uh, they're talking about this, this deep-seated presence. Relational presence. But in both the Old and New Testaments, peace is more than an individual quality. It's entwined with justice. It's... it's, it's bound together with right relationships. So, back to Joseph. Now that we got the concept. It's the book of Matthew that gives us the most insight into Joseph's inner inner thoughts. And in Matthew 1.18, we find a Joseph that is very upset by Mary's pregnancy. Uh, The message uses the expression chagrined. He was just pissed off, okay? And he was intent on quietly dismissing Mary, but he doesn't. God speaks to him through an angel, and he accepts Mary into his home. And then in the next chapter in Matthew 2.13, again, Joseph receives indication from God that Herod is out to kill the baby Jesus, so they need to leave for Egypt. And then the same thing happens in in Matthew 2.19. He has a dream. The family returns to Israel. And then again in Matthew 2.22, Based on a dream, he decides to go to Galilee instead of Judea. Now, I'm Lutheran. I'm not an angel appears in my dreams kind of guy. I'm just not. And if they do, I probably miss it. On a good night, my dreams are mildly annoying. On a bad night, my dreams are nightmares. But apparently this Joseph guy 
has some backstage entrance into a dreamland of fellowship with God. And frequently in Scripture, this formula of the angel of the Lord, well, we treat it as a formula in the sense that it indicates something. It, it, it triggers a function of biblical writing. It's used to indicate an epiphany, a moment of clarity about what to do. A moment of clarity of how to be here now. A moment of clarity about how to be here now. What I'm trying to point out here, friends, is that however it is that God is speaking to Joseph... Joseph was present enough to listen and discern. Again, amidst political struggle, struggle, social upheaval, and a conception out of wedlock, Joseph was able to find God's direction under less than ideal circumstances. He, he wasn't meditating quietly in a monastery, drinking tea, you know. He wasn't at a spa Uh, In all of these situations, he was either pissed off or frightened or on the move or some combination of those things. In some cases, he was all of them. And and he senses God's presence in the night, tossing, turning in his bed, sensing God telling him that to drive Mary away would be the wrong thing to do here now. In Bethlehem, trying to get some sleep amid the whimpering and crying of a newborn baby... He senses God saying, go to Egypt. And he knows how to be here now. And that's how Joseph's story shifts our focus from the the decorated nativity scene with the carols in the background and the lights and the ornaments to the restless wee hours of the morning in which Joseph searches for guidance. So, When we look at the peace of Joseph from this back road perspective, instead of the grand narrative, we find a character like us. Because his his invitation, his experience, is an invitation to focus on peace as a day-to-day practice. Chris said that at the beginning of the service when we were in worship. It's a practice. It doesn't wait until there aren't any disturbances. It is something we need when we're neck deep into trouble. It's an active search. It's an active listening for God's presence. It's an exercise that we repeat the same way that we take these deep breaths throughout the day. You know, Davi, our our middle son, came up to me the other day from school, and I was working in my office as a... You know, people take deep, deep, breath, deep breaths on a regular basis throughout the day or they would die. And I was like, thank you, Davi. Like, Do you remember that? No? And I started noticing that every once in a while, without, without thinking, I take a deep breath and I need that breath. The exercise of peace is that exercise of breath. In order to understand peace, in, in the little we know of Joseph, we don't need to imagine you know, these grand scenes of angelic glory overwhelming the senses, uh, you know, these angels that show up with authoritative voices, I am Metatron, the voice of God. 
in the light of which, that's a reference to the movie Dogma, if you've never seen it, in, in light of which there is absolute certainty about what needs to be done. Joseph's peace is a peace of communion with God and the restlessness of being here now. It's regular people peace. It's muggle peace, if you will. It's the, the, the shalom, the irene, that Joseph experiences while he drives the minivan with six kids in the back throwing things at each other and screaming. Joseph steps into God's peace. And, and when he does that, okay, y'all can come up. You know who I'm talking to. When Joseph does that, when he steps into God's peace, I'm going to switch microphones. Chris. He provides the, the care and the support that Mary and Joseph need. Joseph's stance, his, his repeated commitment to being in communion with God and being able to experience God's presence results in an ability to, uh, to experience and practice deep peace in the middle of turmoil. It's a pattern that reminds me of, of Simon and Garfunkel. Like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. That's Joseph looking at the pregnant Mary and saying, Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. That's the peace when we're driving the van and we keep driving and we keep serving and we stay in communion. It's our prayer. Let's sing that together. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. As we follow Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Bethlehem through Advent, and from there to Egypt and back to Galilee, I can hear Joseph singing that under his breath and reminding himself how to be here now. Off the main stage, outside the scope of the lights, Joseph embraces one day after the other, puts one foot in front of the other, and practices peace. As some of you may know, our family is off to, a, to Brazil for a semester. Uh, we'll be back in the summer, and we're going to miss you all. We're going to miss this place. And I don't know how else to end this sermon except by saying, based on the experience of Joseph, Jacob, Anna, Mary, Lydia, Ruth, Abraham, Moses, and so many others before us who have somehow fallen into relationship with God and with each other. Peace be with you. We'll see you soon.